That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 249. It's titled, Should You Invest in India? I recently received an email from a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. He asked, Do you have any thoughts on emerging markets beyond China? Do you follow Indian markets, given more super investors are looking for misvalued opportunities there? Of late, Berkshire has taken a big position in companies there. I checked. Indeed, Berkshire Hathaway last August bought a stake in 197 Communications. It's the parent company of Paytm, India's largest mobile commerce platform. I looked at what other investors have said. In November 2015, Jeffrey Gunlack, who's founder of Double Line Capital, wrote, Buy India. Don't look at your statement for 25 years. Two years earlier, in May 2013, he said, India was very scary, that it, it is very much reliant in terms of foreign capital flow, money flowing into the stock market and out of the stock market, which obviously could impact returns, which is why he's suggesting buy India, but just ignore a lot of the volatility. Ray Dalio of the hedge fund Bridgewater Associates said in March 2019, I would say I'm more optimistic about India than any other country. What Dalio and his team did is they looked at 60 different economies around the world for different metrics and felt that India held the most promise. I have held a position in stocks in India through an exchange-traded fund, the iShares India ETF, since early 2015. That position, as well as my overall emerging markets allocation, represents about 7.5% of my stock holdings. India makes up around 1.3% of the global stock market. So I'm overweight India. But do I follow India? Do I know much about India? I admit, I don't know that much about India. I've never been there. I want to go. But much of my experience is just anecdotal experiences. I like Indian food. In 2015, my son and I were in Sweden. Outside the royal palace, we were selected to go into the inner courtyard. We were handed paper flags from India and instructed to wave as the president of India came in to the courtyard with the royal family of Sweden. I didn't even know India had a president. I had to look it up later. I'm not an expert on India, but I do look at what's going on with their economy. I follow what's going on with the elections. And I've read some of the sacred text from India. I'm reading right now a poem. It's a 700-verse Sanskrit poem. Really, it's scripture as part of the, the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata. 
And this poem is the Bahavagad Gita. The version I'm reading has commentary by Mahatma Gandhi. He was the leader of the Indian independence movement against British colonial rule. He wrote this commentary. In fact, I believe he did the translation in 1946, two years before he was assassinated. He said, this Gita is a great religious poem. The deeper you dive into it, the richer the meanings you get. He said he spent 40 years in an unremitting endeavor to apply the principles from this poem. The central teaching is that action alone is thy province, never the fruit thereof. Let not thy motive be the fruit of action, nor shouldest thou desire to avoid action. It's talking about a lack of attachment to outcome. Gandhi wrote, He who being thus equipped is without desire for the result, and yet wholly engrossed in the due fulfillment of the task before him is said to have it renounced the fruits of his actions. That's the central tenet, to renounce the fruit of your actions. What does that mean? He says it's the absence of hankering after fruit. To be so focused on what's the outcome of our actions. It says if we do that, we become impatient. And then we give vent to anger and begin to do unworthy things. We jump from action to action, never remaining faithful to any. Perhaps we even abandon our principles. That's one of the central teachings of Hinduism. And so when we're looking at a country like India, we need to at least recognize that. But it also describes, I think, to some extent, investing. If we're talking about making an investment and ignoring it for 25 years, we're essentially ignoring the fruits of our actions. We have no idea what the result will be. But if the characteristics are favorable, then maybe it's something we should consider. So let's look at the data for India, recognizing I'm not an expert. I've never been there. We're very much simplifying this analysis, but in some ways, that's what we have to do when we invest. When we're selecting a country, we're going to go back to rules of thumb. What's the, the income stream, the dividend yield for stocks in India? How fast are those dividends growing? That income stream growing as reflected in corporate earnings growth, which is very much tied to the growth of the economy. And what is the valuation? What are investors paying for that earnings stream? Those are the, the three building blocks that I look at in order to make a decision. Because I'm not trying to figure out which company in India should I buy. I want to benefit from the growth of the overall economy. And the economy in India is growing. It, it's growing at about 7% per year. And by what we say economy, we're talking about the output, what is produced in terms of goods and services. India is a huge country. 1.3 billion people, about the same size, a little smaller than China, but per capita GDP, so the amount of output produced per person in India is $1,942. In China, it's $8,827. And in the U.S., it's $59,531. India is much smaller in terms of per capita GDP, and much poorer. 50 million people in India 
are in extreme, extreme poverty. Most others are indeed poor. But there is a growing middle class, and there's some real positives when it comes to India. It's a democracy. Right now, India, beginning last Thursday, April 11th, has begun an election. There are 543 available seats in Parliament's lower house, which is called the Lok Sabha. 8,000 candidates, 2,000 political parties. To secure majority, a party or a coalition needs 272 seats. Right now, that majority is held by the Bharatiya Janata Party. I apologize right now. I, I'm not an expert in India, and the reality is I'll probably and already have mispronounced names. But that party is led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The principal competition or challenger is Rahul Gandhi of the Indian National Congress. Back in 2014, when the BJP came to power, they won an absolute majority. And that was rare. That hadn't happened since the early 1980s. Now, potentially, and in the past, the BJP is part of a a coalition that's called the National Democratic Alliance. Polls right now, the latest polls, show that the parties that, that make up this alliance including the BJP, which is not expected to get an absolute majority again, but we don't know that they will win. We'll see. This is an amazing election in the sense that it is held over 39 days, seven different phases. So different parts or regions around the country vote on different days. There are a million polling stations. These workers, there's 12 million polling officials. They sort of move these electronic polling devices to different regions to do the votes. The results of the election will not be available until May 23rd. 900 million people are eligible to vote. In 2014, 553 million Indians, or 66% of eligible voters, cast ballots. We'll see what it is this time. But we won't know the outcome of this election until May 23rd. What has been the primary issue in this election? It's been reform, particularly addressing poverty. Both parties, the BJP and the Indian National Congress, have proposals, basic income proposals. The Indian National Congress is promising if they win they will pay 6,000 rupees, about $87 a month, to the poorest fifth of households around the entire country. The BJP, they lost three state elections in December. They pledged to pay 6,000 rupees a year to farmers that have less than five acres. The poverty programs in India, there's hundreds of different ones. And studies have shown it, instead of trying to implement all these different relief efforts to just pay a basic income can be much more effective. What else is positive in India in terms of the economy? There's not a lot of debt. Household debt in India is about 10% of GDP. So very, very low. 
The economy is doing fine. If we look at other economic indicators like manufacturing PMI, business surveys, surveys of manufacturing businesses and non-manufacturing businesses, it's an expansion mode. Economy has grown about 7% a year for really since 2014. In the most recent year, it grew at about 6.4% for the year ending 2018. India has favorable demographics. And that's important when we look at how fast can an economy grow? Is the working age population growing? And it is. Right now, the working age population in India is about 900 million. Over the next 20 years, it's expected to grow to 1.1 billion. More workers means they can produce more goods and services. And obviously, they also can consume. And so that leads to faster economic growth. The other thing is more females entering the workforce. Right now, it's at very low levels in terms of female participation rate. But if there are additional labor market reforms, that will allow the development of a strong manufacturing base. And that's what you've seen in other poorer countries, China, for example. Women entering and working in factories, gaining independence by doing so. There are also some risks with India. And before we look at those, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. One of the successes in India the past few years has been the central bank. They have done a good job helping keep inflation in check. The target is around 4% per year in terms of inflation, the rise in prices, and they've generally been able to do that and have maintained 
their independence. They've been able to cut rates when appropriate, raise them when appropriate. But that, at least leading up to this election, is, is being questioned to some extent. The Bank of India's governor resigned in December, Yurjit Patel. He was replaced by Shakati Kanta Das, who is a career civil servant and thought to be an ally to the prime minister. Immediately in January, he cut interest rates, even though the economy is doing very, very well, with the idea of sort of goosing the economy leading up to the election so it does even better. In the U.S., there's been some of that controversy also. Consequently, the issue is, will the central bank in India maintain that independence? And will the economy, at least in the near term, start running too quickly to where you get capacity constraints because rates are too low? Other risks are, will the necessary land and labor reforms take place in the coming years? Right now, India's population is about the size of China, but the flexibility within the labor force is much less, as well as land reforms that will allow greater productivity among workers and land, be able to farm. That's always an issue when it comes to poorer countries. Now, hopefully some of these issues can be mitigated with a social safety net, such as some of these basic income plans. Another risk when it comes to India gets back to the investment element. Let's go back to those building blocks. The dividend yield in India is rather low. It's about 1.3% in terms of stocks in India. So the MSCI India index has a dividend yield of 1.3%. The economy is growing on a real basis, 6 to 7%. And that's what Capital Economics, which is the economics firm that I've used, I've used them off and on for over a decade, one of the most well-respected economic firms in really in the world, they estimate the economy in India will be the fastest growing economy over the next two decades than any economy really in the world, and that it will triple in size over the next two decades. That's good for corporate earnings growth. If per capita GDP came in at 4 to 5% and inflation, let's say that was 4%, that's potential earnings growth of, of 8% per year. And then you have dividends on top of that. So that's an expected return for stocks in India of over 10%. The wild card is investors know that. So the price to earnings ratio of stocks in India, as represented by the MSCI India index, is 23.9. The average going back to 1994 is 18. Investors are paying close to $24 for each dollar worth of earnings of stocks that make up the MSCI India index. That compares to emerging markets where the price to earnings ratio overall in India makes up about 9% of emerging markets. That PE is 13. India is priced with the assumption that it's going to grow. One of the other challenges is what do you invest in? The iShares India ETF that I have an investment in and have had for over four years, the top five holdings make up 34% of the index. The top 10 make up 52%. So it's very concentrated. 
There are 79 holdings in that index. Now, it's done well from a performance standpoint. The ETF was down about 7% last year. It's up around 5.7% this year. But overall, on an annualized basis, it's returned around 7% over the past five years. So it's done fine. More intriguing to me are, and I look for what are other ways to invest in India that's a little more diversified and isn't so top-heavy. An example of that is the iShares MSCI India Small Cap ETF. It has 262 holdings. Dividend yields a little higher at 1.6%. Price-to-earnings ratio is 20.2. A little more reasonable. It's not a 24. And then there's greater diversification. Expense ratio is about 0.8%. This particular index had a tough time in 2018. It was down 25%. That was after a 62% gain in 2017. But over the past five years, it's returned 12.1% annualized, which is more in line with what we're talking about in terms of potential return for India based on those building blocks, based on the dividend yield, based on earnings growth, and assuming the stocks don't get cheaper, which is always a risk. But if they stay roughly the same, then that's the potential there. Finally, I looked at, is there active managers that would be interesting in this space? And I didn't do a comprehensive look, but one example would be the Wasatch Emerging India Fund. Wasatch is a investment manager. They're based out of Salt Lake City. I've, I've We used to use them at my old firm. I've been there on site. Sort of an odd place to have a fund focused on India, but they they do a good job in terms of their their due diligence. From what I've seen, it's a concentrated fund. So around 30 to 40 holdings. So much more concentrated, much more expensive. Expense ratio is 1.7%. But they have done well. Last year, The small cap India ETF for iShares fell 25%. This particular fund only fell 5.5%, and it's up 5.3% year-to-date. So its annualized return over the past five years has been about 16.8%. It's done 16.9% over the past three years. But it's a growth manager. They're finding companies with fast earnings growth. As a result, the price-to-earnings ratio is 30 to 40 for this particular fund. And so when you're using an active manager, you're assuming that they have identified securities that will grow faster than what is already priced in to those stocks, the embedded growth rate in those stocks. And to the extent they're able to identify that, then they'll do better than the overall India index. In this case, the India small cap index as represented by the ETF. And they have done that, but it's going to be volatile. And that, and you're paying for that. You're paying for that, that their skill, their expertise. I'll probably do a little bit of each. I'll do some more passive. And I'll probably give this particular active manager a whirl because it's a firm I've respect and have used in the past. In summary, should you consider investing in India? I think so. If you have any exposure to emerging markets, you already have exposure to that. So we're really asking, should you overweight India 
within your stock allocation? Well, if you want to invest in the economy that is expected to grow the fastest over the next two decades, that is starting from a very low base in terms of per capita income, per capita GDP, that is a democracy that is in the midst of pretty extensive elections, so there's some uncertainty there, that's more expensive than average, given the expected growth rate. But if your time horizon is 10 years or more, I think it it makes for an interesting investment. You can invest passively through an ETF, or you can research some active managers, pay more in terms of fees with the hope that they will be able to identify emerging market stocks that are essentially underpriced or undervalued, even though they have expensive valuation. Even growth managers are trying to buy stocks below their intrinsic value. It's just that the embedded growth rates are much higher, so the overall valuations are higher. So do you want to use an active manager there? That's episode 249. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. This is the email I send out each Wednesday after I release the episode. It contains the links to that week's episode, as well as a some essay on many different topics related to investing money in the economy, some of the best writing I do each week. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.